Let's talk about Mile High Shooting. If you go to milehighshooting.com and order online right now, anything you get is 5% off. Just sign up, click the button, and you're done. Go to the website, and you're going to see right off the bat Zeiss LRP S5. I've been playing with my S5, and I like it. And I also like the S3. They are kicking ass. We're going to be talking about those guys soon. But other things they carry... Well, they only carry good stuff. So they've got AI rifles, AI mags, AI barrels, AI accessories, spur mounts, spur rings. They've got really right stuff, Lapua, Night Force. You can get an ATX outfitted the way that you want it to. And then they've got boatloads of ammunition. They've got boatloads of bullets and powders, as well as every other thing that you could possibly imagine for long-range shooting. I think that they are the ultimate one-stop shop for anybody that listens to this podcast. So hit them up, tell them that the Straight Dope sent you, and you won't be disappointed. They're my local gun shop. They support matches. They support shooters. They're good people, and they can ship all over the country. So whatever it is that you need, they can provide it. Check them out. Get back to the range. Chris, check it out. I get hit up and asked a lot of questions. You get hit up and asked a lot of questions, but you are the perfect person to talk to because you're a jack of all trades. You can shoot a bolt gun well, you can shoot a carbine well, and you can teach people who have no experience with those platforms how to get functional really quick. And one of the things that people constantly point out, and that is kind of like at the heart of rifle craft and a lot of other schools of thought, and I know it's a part of CR2 also, is that when you're standing up, your, your face is naturally kind of in an anatomical spot that is further from the scope than when you're prone. And that distance, right, creates a mechanical problem and it creates kind of a technical issue that you have to attack from not only the equipment side, but from the fundamental side of the shooter and, and it kind of um, opens up like a really cool discussion because it's not one thing. It's kind of a marriage or kind of a marvelous cocktail of multiple issues. And with the craft drill, right, we're doing standing, kneeling, seating, prone. And when you're in standing, seating, kneeling, prone, your eyes change their distance from the scope if your body is in kind of a more comfortable position and some people try to solve that by sticking their face forward pulling their head back and obviously we work to try to mitigate some of that but it introduces other things do you want to kind of like pick up the ball at the first thing that came to mind and and then uh, try to explain some of that from your experience as a sniper instructor and you know that yeah for sure so HMFIC of CR2. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was good. That was uh, you're reading my mind. <laughs> yeah, so no, this is this is a great topic and you know, so one of the one of the things that kind of cliché things that we always said at sniper school was consistency equals accuracy, right? Well, you know, that's really cool when you're just laying in the prone shooting on your belly and we're doing the same thing over and over and over again, but yeah, like you say with the craft drill is it is it forces now this new situation where you know, we're doing different things, but we're trying to achieve the same result. And so that kind of goes against, um, you know, that, that concept of, of, 
you know, uh, of consistency equals accuracy. So, so how do I, how do I achieve accuracy or precision while changing stuff? And, and that's where that, like what you say, when, when I change my body position and my face moves in and out and I'm changing my eye relief and I'm affected by that length of pull difference or, or my length of pull staying the same, but it's, you know, it's affecting my, because of my body position, how can I achieve, how can I achieve that good result? And this is something that um, I feel like a lot of shooters, both new and maybe seasoned, you know, are, are dealing with. And, and it's funny too, because, you know, when you, when you see a lot of guys that maybe shoot competitions and, and the, you know, I, I think we try to find a lot of excuses for why we shot bad when, you know, we'll blame it on the gun. We'll blame it on the ammo. We'll blame it on the conditions. And a lot of times what we don't really think about, and we're maybe not honest with ourselves about is like, maybe it was just us. Maybe we're just not doing the right thing. Um, and that's what I try to always you know, try to be humble about and say, it was like, Hey, maybe I'm the lowest common denominator because truth of the matter is, is we typically are. And what we could probably find is there was probably a breakdown in our fundamental process or our shot process first. And this is a great example of that because like you said, when you are in the prone, your face is closer to the gun. And we typically set our rifles up from that prone position. You know, we set our length of pull in our prone position. We set our cheek piece and our in cheek height in that prone position. You know, if that, if that cheek piece moves left and right, we'll set it while we're in the prone. And then we'll set our eye relief. We'll set our focus. We'll set all those things from that prone position. And a lot of times guys don't even check that when they get up off their belly. And that's one of the crucial things that I emphasize in our, in our kind of PR one courses is once we get done with that process, because that's kind of our baseline, the very next thing we do before we ever go shoot a bullet is I get those students and I'm like, okay, go find the back of a chair, go find a, a, a table, go find a bench, go find a, whatever you can find, set your rifle on that. And now check your rifle. Because then they immediately find out, okay, hey, my length of pull is too long. My eye relief is is not in the right spot. And then they have to adjust. And I and what I tell them is is, you know, like you said, this it's kind of a it's kind of a marriage of things there that we're gonna have to overcome. Because the truth of the matter is for many of us, the majority of our shooting is not gonna be on our belly. And so we want our rifles set up to what's going to suit the majority of our shooting. So what I'd like to tell students is this is when you're in the prone, that's the most favorable position you can be in. And so it's going to be probably the position that you can get away with the most amount of error. Now that's not to say that I want you to do things screwed up in the prone, but what I'm saying is, is if you're, if your length of pull isn't perfect in the prone, it is maybe a quarter inch too short in the prone. You're probably going to be okay. It's something that you can overcome. But if your length of pull is too long in the standing position where you're less stable and everything else is becoming that much more crucial, that length of pull may be something you can't overcome. And so I would rather everything be perfect for you set up in the standing position, if the standing is where you're going to do the majority of your work, then it'd be perfect for you in the prone. And so that's why I'll have them got, I have those students, those, those men and those women check their rifles in those other positions and then make the adjustments before they ever go fire a bullet. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that also then goes into not only the way the equipment's set up, but then also a consideration when you're choosing your equipment. So before CR2 ever started, I ran the force modernization program for snipers for the Army. And one of the things that I had to do was was be the subject matter expert and the voice for snipers for the Army. And, you know, I had to represent those snipers when we made decisions, you know, at the Department of the Army level of what we were going to do to acquire new equipment. And what that meant was, you know, most specifically and what most of the listeners will probably be able to recognize is when we chose the new rifle and when we chose the new scope and we chose some of these new pieces of equipment, I had to advise those senior level commanders that that is what we wanted. And one of those things specifically was the Mark V scope. So a lot of people, you know, they've heard all those crazy stories of like, you know, $10,000 toilet seats and, you know, and, and we, we, you know, had the, had the, the tower with the blind people in there sewing our, uh, or making our pencils and sewing our uniforms. And, you know, they've, they've heard all those crazy stories and, and, you know, maybe there's some merit to some of that, but, you know, we didn't choose the Mark V scope because it was the cheapest scope available to us. Um, and to be completely honest, I honestly never knew the price of a scope when we were choosing whether or not to choose a Mark V or not. It wasn't, I don't sign contracts. Um, I don't pay for things. And when I was in that position, price wasn't a consideration in any way, shape or form. Price and contracts were negotiated long after we had decided what we were going to buy or not or what we, what we were going to choose or not. Um, but we chose it based off the way the pieces of equipment that were submitted for testing turned out, you know, the way the tests turned out. And one of the things that was the most important was eye relief. And so when I had to take essentially the two best, the two top performing scopes, manufacturer scopes and compare those against each other, one of the things that that really was important to me. And when I talked to other experts to kind of get them to weigh in and help me make my decision, one of the things that we decided on was, was eye relief. And eye relief is kind of a, an interesting topic because most people only think of eye relief in respect to um, max power. And, and that's kind of, it's kind of a, a, not the best way to think about it because your eye relief changes based off the magnification that you have. And when we got to thinking about it, we realized that, you know, our snipers and most shooters are going to zero their rifles in max power. And they're going to set their eye relief in max power, obviously, because that's how the scope's meant to be done or how it's meant to be done with that, with the scope. But that's not where they're going to do the majority of their engagements. And so when we looked at the max power eye relief and when we looked at the low power eye relief, we realized that the eye relief had two drastic different kind of zones or the, you know, the eye relief was, was, was different in length. And what we wanted to happen was we wanted those eye boxes or the eye relief to overlap as much as possible. So that way when those guys zeroed their rifles in the prone but then shot their rifle standing on a, on low power. All right, so they zeroed in max power in the prone, but then they were making engagements in low power, but standing, they would have, they would be within their eye relief. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, For sure. Because, 
we we just didn't know how those engagements were going to end up being made. They could be standing, they could be seated, they could be kneeling, they could be prone, they could be you know hanging from their bootstraps, you know, upside down. Right? I mean, we just don't know. And so, but we do know they're going to zero their rifles in the pro nine mm-hmm. times out of ten. Um, so that was really really important for us, and that was one of the determining factors with the Mark V was it had the most favorable eye relief in the entirety of its magnification range. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of goes into this kind of this conversation. And when we're choosing equipment and when we're really kind of picking that equipment across platform, because now when we change position, when we change platform, when we change whatever, it can be really important on which pieces of equipment we choose that's going to be favorable to our situation and our equipment and our setup. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. So that was kind of a long Absolutely. way of saying it, but I think I nailed all those, all those topics and all, kind of all those pieces there. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I don't want to like go back and say like, Oh yeah, that's how I do things. But, but I do think that it's very important to emphasize the fact that we don't shoot prone all the time as field shooters. And so understanding the front and the back of that eye box, so to speak of if you're in the front of it prone and you're in the back of it standing and and you still have room, then you're going to be able to engage in whatever position and not be kind of hindered by scope shadow or, or, or other effects from having your eyeball too close or too far away from the scope. So I think, I think that's really important for people to keep in mind. The other, the other thing that kind of came up is that, right. I mean, I always shoot paper at max. Most of the time I shoot at max power at a hundred because target acquisition is a little bit harder when you're on max power. So, so, so even though you're shooting paper, you know, you gotta be able to present and get on the target a little bit faster and it's because you, you, you see less, but because we shoot on lower power, um, you're, you're the, what we haven't touched on is that the relationship of eye relief and field of view, there's kind of a, there's an inverse relationship between eye relief and field of view. So you hear some shooters say, well, this scope is awesome because it has a wide field of view. And other scope, other shooters say, well, this, this scope is awesome because it's got, you know, amazing eye relief and they're opposed to one another. And, and I think what I'm hearing from you is that eye relief trumps field of view because you can power down and have field of view by that action alone. Sure. And and if you, you, no matter what you do with field of view, if you don't have eye relief, you're not going to be able to see or engage things quickly anyway, because you're going to be fiddling with your position, trying to get your face too close to the gun or too far. I mean, you just, you have to have proper fundamentals and that by having bigger optical kind of window for eye relief you have more options positionally to apply proper fundamentals without having to force yourself into the gun and as you and i and everyone listening to this knows if you force your body into a position you're gonna have point of impact shifts and those point of impact shifts are going to affect your ability to hit a target and you can't predict what they're going to be. So the only thing that you can do to ensure that you're going to hit a target is rely on your fundamentals and don't force yourself into positions where you're compromising your ability 
to maintain an adequate level of precision and accuracy for the shot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, this isn't commonly known, but um, and actually, I'm going to do my best to explain it. But you know, without being a <laughs> you know an optical engineer or even working for an optical company. Um, I, you know, I, I may not get everything absolutely perfect. And, and I do encourage, so, so Michael Bostieri from loophole was just on, uh, Jacob Bynum's podcast. When guys get done with this podcast, uh, go over there and listen to that one. Cause he does a very, very good job of explaining this, but there's, there's a, essentially, I think it's called an optical triangle or basically what it comes down to is there's a kind of a balance in your scope, um, between eye relief and, and field of view. And, you know, you, you, you kind of have to strike a balance between those. And when you get better at one, you lose on the other. Okay. Um, so when you hit a scope that has a really, really wide field of view, you lose eye relief. And when you get a scope that has a really, really favorable eye relief, you're going to lose field of view or at least apparent field of view. And if you think about that, it kind of makes sense, right? So if you think about, you know, looking through a, 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 toilet paper tube or a, or a paper towel tube, if I bring my eye really, really, really close to that tube, I'm going to be able to see a wider field of view. But if I take that tube farther away from my eye, it's going to start to look like I'm looking through a straw or it's going to, I'm going to lose field of view, right? But I'm going to get a longer space in between my eye and that tube, right? So think of that space as your eye relief, so if the if I if I shorten up that eye relief, I get wider field of view. If I increase that eye relief, I lose field of view. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So what some companies will do is 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 choose one over the other, right? So some companies like like your loopholes, they've they've been known and they've they've always kind of focused on being field, you know, designed for field use, right? So they've always wanted to have a large eye relief. And that was, like I said, kind of in the last part of our conversation was they wanted to have great eye relief. Um, and that's kind of why they won out in that particular situation because we were looking for field application. Um, and they had, so they do have really, really favorable field, you know, uh, eye relief. Um, and that may be why some people just say, hey, you know, the apparent field of view on those scopes isn't as good as maybe something else. But have you ever been behind a scope and you're like, hey, man, this glass is crystal clear, you know, and I, I really like it or whatever, but you know, I have a hard time with eye relief behind it. Well, that's probably why is you've got a really wide field of view on it, but they've given up on the amount of eye relief. And that's why it's very, very sensitive to it. And that's why your length of pull becomes very, very important. And that way might be why, hey, you set that rifle up in the prone but now that when you're standing behind it, you find how sensitive it is. And now you're searching with your head and your neck and you're moving your face around all over behind that thing to try to then get back into that sweet spot. And that's really, really important. We see on carbines because, you know, with some of these scopes, they're very, very critical when it comes to, um, sorry, I'm getting a call here. Trying to ignore it. Um, it's very, very critical on some of these scopes, especially on carbines, because the way a carbine's designed, um, with its length of pull and where a scope has to be positioned on it, when you do get up out of that prone position and you get into those standings, um, it, it, that, that scope is naturally pushed farther away. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's just kind of a balance, and you got to look at those, look at the way the sculpture design and what the intent was was designed for. Um, right, and that's hard to know, but I think that if people understand, you know, that there there is that interplay and there is that balance, then they can kind of decide on their own what it was designed for, and they could decide, okay, this is the scope good for the application that I'm trying to apply it in rather than, you know, I saw this post and they say, this is an awesome scope and it might be awesome, but it might be awesome for something outside of the wheelhouse of the scope and and application that you're using it in. Right. And I like that you like carbines and I like carbines and we can shoot the hell out of them. And, um, you know, I, I do think that it, you know, the design of a carbine, yeah, it, it forces you to get like a cantilever mount to push that, push that scope forward. And then you've got to be able to like convert or, you know, move that around, especially if you're going back and forth between. One thing that I've noticed um, with some of the cantilever mounts, um, just to kind of like completely uh, go on a squirrel topic here is I don't know what the part of the the scope, the, the, you know, the body that the, um, that the turrets connect to, but the size of that portion of the scope has a pretty big effect on your ability to adjust it forward and back because um, if you have a single piece mount, like a spur mount, right? So like um, I've been shooting, I've got some Zeiss scopes. Right. And the size of that part of the scope is very big compared, you Mm -hmm. know, to to, uh, right Mm -hmm. now I'm just holding it up right next to a Burris. And, um, oh, and I, I got, uh, here's another one. Here's a night force. And it, it's about the same size as, as the, well, this, this one's not fair to compare cause it's a one to eight, uh, gas gun, but the fixed size of the rings of a spur mount give me about a, a half an inch of wiggle room forward and back. And so where it's mounted on your rifle and then where you have to mount it inside of that, you know, it could be limiting if you don't have a big rail, right? Because some of these occupy the entire size of the rail system that you're mounting it to. And then if you've got individual rings, you can play a little bit more with your ability to push it forward and back. But I think that that's really interesting because I've run into times where I want to slide it forward and back, or I take a a quick detach cantilever mount and I want to get it on my bolt gun and, and trying to find that spot where I can mount it, where I can put it back and forth and not, yeah. not that people would do that normally, but you know, I, I like to dick around with ridiculous things like that. I try to come up with, all right, how do I get a setup where I could pop it back and forth and uh, <laughs> be, be able to use it, you know, at that capacity, like for, for like the sniper adventure challenge, you have to have a shootable rifle, right? But everybody's trying to cut weight. And I thought, Oh shit, this would be a great idea. So I tested you know, in the, it, I never did it because I couldn't find a good solution, but I thought, man, you know, if I could find the offsets for the two rifles and I could adjust where it mounts and have it fit just right, we could have two rifles because we're never shooting simultaneously. Um, what if we shared one scope, you know, we could take a few pounds <laughs> out of our loadout and, right. uh, you know, so, so, so I fucked around, but I couldn't find like an adequate solution for that. So we ended up. Yeah. And I know on that, on that Zeiss, on that Zeiss, it's so large that you have to pretty much run like a, I think it's a 1.5 inch ring height. Uh, if you're going to run a spur, because if you run anything lower, it won't clear the bottom of that, of that, uh, yeah. um, the, the center part of the, the turret housing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Right, right. And I like high anyway, just because sure. it, it's Same you here. know it's a little bit more comfortable um, back and forth. But um, and then the other the other thing is not not only do you need uh, farther forward, but but a lot of us shoot carbines kind of you know not not in the not in the exact same technical way that we shoot a gas gun. And so I tend to shoulder my gas gun more than I run it on my chest. And the service rifle guys, they've got, when they change positions, they actually change their length of pull, right? Have you, yeah, absolutely. Um, those setups. And and so, you know, I think that's fascinating that, that, you know, people that are performing at a high level, they have the ability and they've already kind of front loaded their ability to change length of pull uh, and the biathlon, those guys do the same thing where it's not a fixed setup and being able to, you know, in an instant go from standing to prone, switching your length of pull, but nonetheless, you still have to set up your optic in advance to account for that change in length of pull with the biggest eye relief right. window that you, that you can so that you can apply those proper fundamentals. Because I, I, yeah, I can't overstate the fact that if you force your body to get a good sight picture and that's not how you've trained and practiced your fundamentals. It's likely you're going to have shots. You know, your group size is going to increase. It doesn't mean you can't hit it. It just means like if you take 20 shots, digging your head around, you know, I would guess that your group size is going to double um, just throwing out like a random number. You know, if you do, if you have somebody just dick around with random length of pull and, and screwed up eye relief, it's going to double their group size yeah, pretty easily. And then that makes their hit probability, depending on the target size, you know, it's going to lower their hit probability as targets mm-hmm. get smaller or farther away. Right. And yeah. you don't want to do that. Right. Cause you want to be able to know that when you pull the trigger, bullets going to go where you intended to go. And if you missed that, you know, that that correction is just one, because of wind or distance, <laughs> not because like, oh, you know, my cheek pushed the rifle right or left or up or down or right. Like, right. you know, you're not thinking about that, but people are surprised when they see those effects on paper and then scale it out. And you say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't think it was wind, you know, let's, let's change your body a little bit. And, yeah. and uh, that tends to be my focus. And people say, how come my group looks like this? I say, all right, cool. Like video yourself, send me the video, send me some pictures. I think it's you. You know, because initially they're like, man, I, I think my windage turret's broken. I don't think that's it. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway. Well, that's that's funny that you say that because, well, so speaking of the service rifle guys really quick, I mean, they're doing exactly like what you said. They're, they've got, you know, pre-marked positions in their stocks and their cheek pieces. So that way when they change their position, their head remains in the same spot, even though their body positions change, which may affect where their stock is in relation to their, their shoulder or their, you know, the shoulder pocket or whatever. Same thing with biathlon guys, because they go from shooting in the prone to then shooting standing. And now they have to support the rifle with their body instead of the ground or whatever else. And so their body position and body mechanics have completely changed. And so now that length of pull is, you know, either irrelevant or, you know, at least with the way it was originally set up. And I know some of those guys that, you know, they'll shoot some of the gas gun matches that we shoot and they'll even, they'll even pay attention to any kind of shift that they might have between shooting prone and then shooting off a barricade because just the way that they balance their rifle on a barricade causes a slight point of impact shift. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe because of, of the influence on the, on the handguard or something like that. But yeah. Um, yeah, I just I had a student who who started to shoot some matches with me, 
Um, and we're probably going to even shoot some team matches this year together, but you know, he came into town and he was shooting one of my rifles and you know, he couldn't get, he, he was having he's trouble grouping with it. And he was like, Hey, this thing's not shooting. Well, I, I put the gun together and zeroed it before he ever showed up, you know, chronoed it out with the ammo he was going to shoot the match with. And I was like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. You know, the gun's not shot out. That barrel only has a few hundred rounds and it's a, or, you know, maybe five, 600 rounds. It was the gun that you and I, that I shot when you and I shot that, uh, snipers on down match. So I was like, mm-hmm. it's a 308. Like this thing's got plenty of life in it, you know? And so I get down on the gun and I, I print a cloverleaf, you know? And it was like, um, uh, just shot a great group for me. And I was like, well, you know, let me go get a couple more rounds. Cause that was only a three round group. So I, I got up off the gun, walked over, grabbed two more rounds, put them in the gun, got back down on the gun and then printed two more rounds in the same spot. I had printed the other three. And so I was like, um, it groups fine. So then, <laughs> you know, it, it was zero. So, so then he goes about shoots the match and there were some stages he did great on. And there were some stages he did really bad on. And then it, you know, we checked zero twice throughout that match again because there were some stages that it was just dramatically off on. And so I was like, you know, I don't know what to tell you, man. Maybe that scope gave up the ghost. You know, I've had it for many, for quite a few years now, so it, it's possible. Maybe something's gone on with it. And I called the manufacturer. I know the guys, and they were like, hey, are you going to check it out before you send it back? I said, yep, I'll check it out before I send it back just to do my due diligence. I go, I shoot, I do a tracking test with it. The best that I know how I'm, I'm take it left. I take it right. I take it left. I take it right. I take it left. I take it right up, down, up, down, up, down, up, you know, always returning to center, you know, and it prints fine. And it's always going back to where it was. And, it, and every time I take it to the side or up or down, it prints, you know, exactly. I mean, it's printing groups in exactly where it's supposed to print groups every single time. So I sent it to the guy and I was like, I don't know what to tell you, brother. Like it's, it's, it's shooting fine. And he's like, well, I don't, you know how I shoot. I don't know what the problem is. And I was like, I don't know, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe you just, that gun just really didn't fit you well. I, I, I don't have a reason. I don't have a reason right now. Well, yeah, just, just today before we were talking like an hour or so ago, we're talking about parallax and he's having a parallax issue because he just switched to a new scope and the scope he got was from me. <laughs> Same brand as the last scope, but he, he got a scope from me. And I was like, you're having parallax issues. And he's like, yeah, I, you know, the parallax, this and that. And I was like, hang on a second. Let's check your focus. Come to find out he didn't adjust his focus because he's so used to getting on my guns and shooting it with the focus that I already had set that he never bothered to check the focus. Mm. Well, the focus is set for me and it's not where the focus needs to be for him. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to tell him like parallax is not going to overcome a focus issue. Right. You know, right. It, it'll, it'll overcome some, but if we got a big enough of a focus issue, it's not going to make up for it. And so, mm-hmm. We ha- he unfortunately has not had enough time to correct the focus issue and then go back and completely, you know, he's going to go back to the range tomorrow and we're going to see if that completely fixed the problem. But we may have just found out what was the issue at that match a couple weeks ago and why mm-hmm. he was shooting so terribly because if his gun had just been out of focus the whole time, that might have been why I got on the gun, it printed fine, and then he gets on the gun and it prints terrible. Mm-hmm. 
No, for sure. I've seen that too with parallax being out. Like it can add up to an inch of deviation. And yep. obviously when you change position, not only is it an inch left and right, but it could be an inch up and down. So if you're going from prone to standing, you could be adding, you know, three tenths, four tenths of difference based on where your eye is with inconsistencies. Yes. Um, and yeah, our eyes are different. So they got to be focused different. And that's one thing that um, probably gets overlooked a lot. Right. I, I didn't, that wasn't at the top of my mind. And then when you said, that, I thought, Oh shit, that's right. Cause our eyes like literally like we got to have that reticle glued to the target when we wiggle it or parallax is off, but the focus will actually be different. And, you know, because I shoot paper a lot, I'm obsessive about the parallax check, but a lot of people aren't. So they just like, you know, set it till it's clear. It's like, Oh dude, that's not, um, do yeah. the wiggle, you know? And then, and, and cause there is a little window in there and that window can have pretty profound effects, especially if you're not used to getting it set and you just say, okay, I could see the target and shoot those minor things. Cause it doesn't take much to move it left or right. Mm-hmm. You know, half inch mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, that, that's imperceptible to us if, unless you're paying attention to that reticle right. glued to target. And, and, uh, that somebody, you know, like I think you could say that over and over again, but until somebody actually sees it, I think they'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But then when you see it, you go, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is crazy. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, for sure that can add a pretty profound effect. And then if your rings are tightened on wrong, you can get optical disturbances on top of that, that cause, you know, what looks like a parallax shift, but it's a ring torque thing. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, these are all hard lessons that, I, that I've seen, but, but yeah, if you're like, okay, well it's 35 inch pounds or it's 15 inch pounds or, or whatever it is for your rings and your optic, like you definitely have to stay in that window. Cause if you go over it or if it's in the wrong spot, or if there's just something wrong with it, it could start to have those optical disturbances. And you, you wouldn't notice it till you shot paper and then you shot distance and thought, man, something's not right. And, and those can take a long time to diagnose. Yeah. Without somebody there, you know, or without another set of eyes to say, all right, you know, you, everything is yeah. working right. You know, let's shoot it back and forth to make sure it works right. And, uh, yeah, that that I think that's a one big upside to taking courses, to being coached, to having another set of eyeballs there. So a lot of those issues could be diagnosed a hell of a lot faster because we're so emotionally wrapped up in our equipment that of course we want to blame something. And and it could be something, but it's not always what you think it is at first. And and those answers get solved. And usually the answer isn't something that we like, but it gets solved faster rather than scratching right. our heads. And ultimately, if you don't diagnose it fast, then you end up going to match and just blowing money on a match yeah. that you wish you did better because something crapped out or, or you didn't realize like, Oh fuck, this was off or that was off. And why did I miss these points? And I could have got these and you go into the shoulda, woulda, coulda. It's like, man, it's worth validating all your equipment in advance, making, you know, and, uh, going with confidence otherwise it's cheaper to just skip it that's right that's right well hey brother i gotta wrap it up got this uh this this track meet to get to 
All right. Uh, before you go, uh, your website. Yep. CR2 shooting solutions.com or you can check us out CR2 supply cage, uh, for any courses and stuff. We get the mountain rifleman coming up in uh, T minus 10 days. Uh, there's still a couple spots. I had some people drop because of family issues, stuff like that. So I think somebody actually signed up while we were on this podcast. Uh, actually some guy from uh, California is going to make it out. So anybody's still interested in that, they can get out there and, and, uh, come and see, come and see us. Yeah. And then another way to reach out to you, Instagram, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, all those different social medias. We're there. We're real responsive. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're hip. <laughs> we're hip with all the social medias. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot, man. Yeah. It's a good talk. Heck yeah. I'll get this up and we'll keep charging. All right. Sounds good, buddy. Have a good one. Yep. What can Riflecraft do for you? There's a lot of things Riflecraft can do for you. First of all, it directly supports this podcast. If you want to be a supporter of this podcast, go to Riflecraft.com and get a monthly supporter subscription for not very much money, right? Like shooting a magazine of ammo a month. You will support this podcast. You will get a login to the website where you can log your craft drills, you can log your positional drills, you could take notes, and it'll interpret some of that data to information that's useful for your training and also keeping a track record over time. I think that even though we don't talk a lot about journaling or something like that, it is pretty sweet to be able to have a record over time of your shots and that is great. You also get access to another podcast called The Subcast, where I take topics from here, The Straight Dope, and I go into them a little bit deeper and provide information and thoughts and opinions that I don't necessarily share here to the public because um, it's just worth something. Another thing that you can do is you can get shirts. You can go buy yourself a bunch of shirts for you and your friends. You can sign up for online training. We have the 4 plus 1 program, which will definitely require effort on your part, but that effort will translate to actual results. Shooters are going from mid-pack to top 10. Shooters are being more confident in their hunting, and they're seeing actual, real, tangible results. You've got to put in the work. I provide the feedback, and I scale that for four weeks after the initial assessment week. And we, you know, we talk through emails and stuff like that. You can also sign up for one-on-one coaching and other things. So hit up riflecraft, R-I-F-L-E-K-R-A-F-T.com and get closer to your shooting goals.